Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and have a seat. And as you do, grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one somewhere around you. Uh, Grab that, John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. You can take that with you as you leave this morning. But it's really important that we get our eyes on God's Word this morning because what you need, what I need, is not to hear from me, but we need to hear from God this morning. Amen? And so open your Bibles to John 4. If you weren't here last week, we started a series uh, through what we call our four pillars. And we said last week that just like as you walk through a city and you see these massive buildings, these skyscrapers that are so, so impressive, what's even more impressive about them and what actually makes them possible is not what we see above the surface, but the foundation that we can't see below the surface. And in the same way for us as a church, all these things that we see here around us are great, they're fine, but without a strong foundation, none of this will last and it will begin to crumble. And so we're walking through kind of our foundations, like who we are, what's core to us as Harvest um, series throughout the next couple weeks. And so uh, we said last week, we got to start with a mission. We got to start like, hey, what, what are we about? What are we after? And we said this, our mission as a church is to simply glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And, and we got to see here the priority of glorifying God. We exist, our church exists, you and I exist to make much of God to shine a spotlight on him and then get out of the way as fast as we can so that he is made to look great and awesome and we are made to look nothing. We exist to glorify God and if honestly if we fail at that we fail at everything else in our church. We exist to glorify God and we really believe we're going to see God glorified. We're going to see him made much of as we pursue this thing called the Great Commission. Someone summarize the Great Commission for me. In its most basic form it is make disciples. To make disciples. And so we want to see God glorified as we go and make disciples, as we go and and see other followers of Jesus made here on the south side. And so we exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That's what gets us out of bed every morning. That's what fires us up. And, and, And those of you who work for an organization, you work for a company, you know that a mission is no good without a process. Um, Otherwise, a mission, they're just words on a board, they're words on a wall. And so our process here um, is pretty simple. It has, it's three W's. The first W is worship. Man, we need to say these more often. (laughs) This is good for us to know. Worship. The first W is worship. Worship Christ. The second is walk. Walk with Christ. And the third work for Christ. And so we believe disciples will be made as we worship Christ with our lives, as we walk with Christ, not just Sunday morning, but throughout the week. And then as we work for Christ, not just here, but as we look to live on mission where we work, live, and play, we believe disciples will be made for the glory of God in our community, in our state, in our country, and across the globe. And so we're committed to that. But we also know this, that, that this process, this mission is built on four pillars. And for us, like our, our process may change, our programs may change, but, but for the life of harvest, our four pillars will never change. Everyone say never. never. 
Oh, come on, everyone say never. These will never change for us. This is core to who we are and what God has called us to. And so the first one is this, unapologetic preaching. We unpacked that last week. How many of you are grateful to be part of a church that just opens this and say, we stand on this? Amen? We're grateful for the word of God. We unapologetically preach it here at Harvest. But we're also committed to three other things. Unashamed worship, unceasing prayer, and then unafraid witness. And so um, this week and then the next two weeks, we're going to be walking through these pillars together. But I'm really excited to dive into this morning, unashamed worship. And so we're going to unpack that together today. But I want to ask you a question as we get started. How many of you, as you open your phone and maybe you have a a news app that you go to pretty consistently, uh, maybe you you turn on the TV and you're a a news junkie that way, or maybe it's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's Instagram, it's uh, Snapchat, it's whatever. But, But how many of you can honestly say, as you look at those things, that you're encouraged by the world and what you see around us? Man, that's like zero for however many people are here and in first service. There was not one hand that went up. I'm right there with you. It is honestly so discouraging for me. Every, every morning I wake up, I go to open my USA Today app, and I cringe a little bit because I'm not sure what I'm going to see. We, we see rumors of wars. We see cancer. We see marriages falling apart, lives falling apart, some new scandal, some rumors of countries falling apart. There's civil war. There's starvation. There's poverty. There's on and on and on and on we could go. And as we look around us, we start to go, oh, it just feels broken. It feels like our world has gone mad, like we've gone off the deep end. And honestly, in my flesh, I know this isn't right, but often what I want to do is just like stick my head in the sand, cover my ears, close my eyes, and just hope it all goes away. And we look around us and it feels like the world is falling apart, like we've gone crazy. But we're going to see this morning the very thing that I believe has caused our world to go so crazy, to go insane. As we look around and we see all these things happening and it feels so discouraging and and there's so much pain and hopelessness, the very thing that has caused all of that in our world today is actually the very thing that God says, hey, do this correctly and it will transform not only my life, not only your life, but it'll transform our world. And the word, the thing we're gonna look at today is worship. And now some of you are going like, dude, that's weak. I promise you, I hope by the end of this morning, you're going to see that worship is actually the soul-destroying problem, but worship is also the soul-satisfying solution to everything we see around us. But before we go any further, I think it's really important for us to define what is worship. Because how many of you can honestly say outside of a church setting that you're constantly hearing the word worship used? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's a churchy word. Worship is a churchy thing. And so I think it's really important that we define and make clear what we're talking about as we talk about worship. The the Hebrew word for worship in, in scripture literally means to do this, to bow before. This is the picture that ought to come to our minds as we think about worship. To bow before. We're gonna define it this way. This morning, worship is to give myself completely to something or someone above everything else. 
Worship is to give myself completely to something or someone above everything else. The assumption here is that whatever we're giving ourselves to, we believe it's of the highest worth. It's of the greatest value. It is the greatest treasure that we can possibly have with our lives. We do this to something or someone and above everything else. We give ourselves completely to something or someone. That's worship. And we've got to understand this morning, God created us to worship him. You and I were created to worship God. But we see very early on in this book, in the book of Genesis, uh, God created Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve made a choice in Genesis 3 that has affected our world forever. And they made a choice to walk away from God. And instead of worshiping God, they decided to worship other things. And our world has been broken and hasn't recovered since. But we're going to see today... God is drawing us and calling us back to himself to lay down the things that we worship and this morning to come back to him and worship only him. And so before we go any further, I want to pray for us and then we're going to dive in together to John chapter 4. But let's pray. Father, I come before you and I just ask you to work. I ask you to move in a powerful way. God, reveal to us the things in our lives that are pulling us away from you. Reveal to us the things that we bow down to in our lives other than you. And God, may we have the courage and boldness to just lay those things down today. God, do that work in us. And I can't do that work for anybody here. That's got to be the power of your spirit. And so, um, God, may your word just go forth May the messenger be nothing, and may your message be everything this morning. Our hearts long for it, we need it, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So John chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, let's talk a little bit about uh, some context here before we dive in. So John was written by a man named... John. So John wrote the book of John. It's one of four gospels that for us unpack the life of Jesus. And so we're diving into a story in John chapter 4 where Jesus and his disciples have been in a region called Judea and they're going north to a region called Galilee. What we got to understand is that typically for Jews, like Jesus and his disciples were, um, when you traveled from Judea to Galilee, you would take a certain route. And so you'll see on the map behind me, typically Jews would take the route that you see in red. And the reason they would take this route is to avoid a certain group of people called the Samaritans. And so they would literally, Jews would add days to their journey to get from Judea to Galilee and from Galilee to Judea. They would take this red line that would actually add days to their trip just so they didn't have to see or interact with these people called Samaritans. Um, To say it that Jews and Samaritans just didn't get along would be way too mild. They hated each other. Hated each other. How many of you, even when you travel, would say like, man, I would add three to six days to my journey just so I didn't have to, I mean, I hate traveling, right? You want to get there as fast as you can, you want to, but literally the hatred was so strong, they would, whatever it took to avoid each other. Jews would actually pray and thank God that they weren't born a Samaritan. I mean, the hatred was strong between these two groups of people. 
But what's awesome about this story is that Jesus doesn't take the typical route as he's going from Judea to Galilee. He doesn't walk around Samaria, but he actually cuts right through the heart of the people that everyone else wanted to avoid. And can we just say we're thankful that we have a Savior that comes right to the people, that comes right to us, that goes right after us, even when anyone else wanted to avoid us. Amen? We have a Savior who comes after us. And so Jesus here doesn't avoid these people. He cuts right through the heart of Samaria. And on his journey with his disciples, they get tired. And so they stop at a town called Sychar, and they stop at this well, Jacob's well. um, And they stop just to get a drink. And so Jesus sits at this well. His disciples go into the town to buy some food. And then as this is happening, um, the the context here tells us it's noon. So it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And this is going to be really significant for us as we continue. Because typically at noon, nobody else is there. But this morning, we're going to see that that's not the case in this story. And so Jesus sits down at the well at noon, and we'll pick it up in John 4, verse 7. And it says this, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Remember, we said Jews and Samaritans, they what? They hate each other. They hate each other. And so here Jesus begins to address this Samaritan woman, and the Samaritan woman looks at him and says, What? You talking to me? Why are you talking to me? We're supposed to hate each other. Don't, I won't talk to you if you don't. Why are you talking to me? Jesus continues and he answers her question with an interesting statement in verse 10. Jesus answered her. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answers her question and and begins to transition the conversation out of just physical thirst uh, into spiritual thirst. He begins to try to move the conversation out of just a physical thirst into this like spiritual thirst, this, this worship that we pursue with our lives. But she doesn't get it. She's still thinking like we're talking about physical water. And so she goes, dude, how can you get me water? You don't have a bucket. You don't have anything to like put down into the well to to bring water up. How are you going to do this? Are you greater than Jacob, the one who created the well? Which I love that. So ironic, isn't it? Here's the creator of all things standing in front of her. And she says, are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus could have just been like, actually, (laughs) yes. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He tries again to move the conversation out of just the physical into the spiritual because he says this in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
Jesus, again, tries to get the conversation um, out of just physical thirst into spiritual thirst, into this worship desire that we have. But the woman still just isn't there. And so she says, like, I don't know how you're going to get the water, but just give me the water so I don't have to come back to the well. I I just want whatever you have, I'll take it. Jesus tries again. And this time, I think she begins to figure out something more is going on with this conversation. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And after that, we say, boom, roasted. Jesus goes right for the heart. And I love what the woman says after this. Anybody remember the phrase, no, duh? You remember that? This is one of just like the best no-duh statements in all of Scripture because verse 19 continues and she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's like, whoa, this dude is not just some ordinary man. What Jesus does here is he's using a common physical picture to try and get her to understand a spiritual reality. That our souls are thirsty and we worship at different wells to try to satisfy our thirsty souls. And for this woman, what's the well she worshiped at? Relationships. Men. She had gone from one husband to two, to the third one, to the fourth one, to maybe the fifth one, to now she's with a man, they're not married, they're living together, and and Jesus just calls her out, and he goes right for the heart. And he wants her to see that the well that she has been trying to drink from to satisfy her thirsty soul actually hasn't quenched her thirst at all, but left her more thirsty, and in the process has actually destroyed her soul. See, what's interesting about this interaction is, do you remember what time it takes place? What time of the day is it? Noon. And this is really significant for this reason. No one else would have been at the well at noon. Here's a woman in a town, in a community, that's obviously not the cream of the crop, but is probably hated and pushed to the fringes by the other women of the community. Because most women would go early in the day to the well, they would gather, and, and, and this was a common gathering place. You wanted to be there. This is where kind of the town gossip happened, and, and you would kind of be in the know. But here's a woman who actually avoids that and goes to the well when no one else is there. She has shame that's driving her away from people. She's broken. She's hurting. She's lonely. And she's searching for her soul to be satisfied in something. So she goes from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship, hoping that maybe this one, maybe this one will finally satisfy. I think what Jesus is showing us here is the the first thing we see in this story is worshiping anything other than God is the soul-destroying problem. Worshiping anything other than God is the soul-destroying problem. And we see this so clearly in the woman in this story. That worshiping the wrong thing has essentially destroyed her soul. It's left her feeling worthless and shameful and dirty where she just wants to, she just wants to be by herself. I don't even want to have to interact with anybody else. 
Worshiping anything other than God is the soul-destroying problem. Because you and I were made to worship God. But as we said, ever since the fall, we worship everything but God. We're thirsty. And, and to use the picture that Jesus uses, we're constantly going to these different wells to try to quench our thirst. And the Bible has a term for this, and it calls it idolatry. And before you write that off as saying, I don't struggle with that because I don't have little wooden idols in my house that I bow down to, and that's not the picture here. When we talk about idolatry, here's what we're saying. Idols are anything more important to you than God. Idols are anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. I mean, that's convicting right there. How much do we think about other things versus how much are we absorbed with thinking about the Lord? Idols are anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. An idol is whatever you look at and say, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. This is an idol. And essentially what idolatry is, is worship. It's just worshiping the wrong thing. It's false worship. It's counterfeit worship. And I want to take some time here to look at three common soul-destroying idols in our world today. And I got kind of combined these lists from a couple uh, preachers that I really respect. One name's Matt Chandler uh, down in Texas, and then another is named Tim Keller, uh, who's a a pastor down in uh, New York City. And so here's kind of a combined list from both of them. But I think these are three common soul-destroying idols that we often run to to try to quench our thirsty souls. And the first one is this, money and comfort. Three common soul-destroying idols. Number one, money and comfort. Safety. I think as, as I was preparing for this morning and throughout this week, as I was just trying to wrestle with the Lord, like, God, show me some idols in my life, this one just jumped off the page to me because I can tell you, for two and a half years, I've been telling our small group guys, and if you're here, I don't want to amen, you don't have to out me, I'm I'm coming clean. Uh, For two and a half years, I've been telling my small group guys, I'm going to walk across the street and go, like, develop a relationship with my neighbor and try to share the gospel with my neighbor. But I can tell you, in two and a half years, I've not made the journey 50 feet across the street. Why? Because I do this at the altar of comfort and safety. And guess what's a lot more comfortable than going to some complete stranger's house and trying to strike up a conversation and develop a relationship? It's a lot more comfortable to sit on my couch next to my wife and watch Netflix or something. That's a lot more comfortable. But God hasn't called us to comfort. And I so easily in my soul find myself bowing down and giving myself completely to this idea of, of comfort, of safety, of like, man, if I could just get more money, then I'll get more things. And if I have more things, I'll be more satisfied. And, and, and we know that's a lie too. How many of you got new things for Christmas? Do you get new things for Christmas? How many of you will probably have that in a yard sale six months from now? 
right? We get over our new things so quickly. They're shiny for a little bit, but then we're kind of over it, and we want the next new thing. I swear Apple is like the king of this because they come out with a new phone, and then you get it, and you go, oh, wow, this is actually the same thing as my other phone. But we want the new, we want the shiny, and we think maybe, maybe this will satisfy my thirsty soul, but we find it actually leaves us wanting. Three common soul-destroying idols. Number one, money and comfort. Number two, relationships and desires. Relationships and desires. And here's the important thing for us to realize about idols. Idols in and of themselves oftentimes aren't wrong. Because guess who designed and created relationships? God. We're wired for relationship. But where our souls get destroyed is when we try to elevate relationship to above God and we look to, to, to find our satisfaction in relationships in ways that God never designed for relationships to be. And we start thinking, man, if I could just find the right man, if I could find the right woman, if I could find the right friend, then finally my soul will be satisfied. And it's a lie from the enemy. And we're asking relationships with others to do what they were never designed to do. And then I don't think I have to convince anyone in here that, that desires and especially sexual desires outside of the context that God has designed it to be fulfilled in it leads to insanity. Just look at the world around us. Every time I open my news app, it's a new powerful person who's been fired or let go or is under investigation for some kind of sexual thing going on in their life. Uh, we've gone mad because we're asking sexual desires to do for our souls what God never designed them to do and they will leave us empty and more thirsty than we were before. Three common soul-destroying idols. Money and comfort, relationships and desire, and lastly, power and respect. Power and respect. And I can honestly stand up here and say, I want approval. Like, I want people to, um, to accept me, to approve me. I want people to um, view me as a success. And I think we all can relate to that to some degree or another. We want to win, but power, respect, success, they will leave us feeling empty and thirsty every time when we look to power and respect to try to quench my thirsty soul. Three common soul-destroying idols, money and comfort, relationships and desires, power and respect, and each of these will leave us thirsty but praise God that this story continues. Because Jesus doesn't stop here with the bad news. You see, he continues on in this conversation with this woman and brings us the awesome news of great joy for us that we can be set free from these soul-destroying problems and we can find here in this text the soul-satisfying solution that each and every one of us desires today. And so let's keep reading John 4 in verse 19. We said Jesus just exposes this woman. And then verse 19, again, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And so we see there in verses 19 and 20, this woman, as Jesus kind of exposes her sin, she, she quickly tries to change the subject, says, you are a prophet, and now let's talk about worship, which is exactly where Jesus wanted to get her this whole time anyway. And so then Jesus begins to unpack for us what it really looks like to not be worshipers who bow down to idols, but instead to be true worshipers. We said in the beginning of the story, Jesus tells us that worshiping anything but God is the soul-destroying problem. We see here in this text, worshiping only God is the soul-satisfying solution. Worshiping only God is the soul-satisfying solution. Look with me at verses 23 and 24 in your Bibles. And we're going to unpack this together. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, when the true worshipers, I love that Jesus here uses the term true worship because if there's true worship, then there's got to be what? False worship. And that's what he's been trying to get this woman to see all this time is that she's worshiping, but she's worshiping falsely. She's worshiping at the altar of these idols. She's going to wells that will never satisfy her thirsty soul. See, idols leave us thirsty and destroyed, but God is calling us back to true worship, to worship that will actually satisfy. And he continues in verse 23. And he says this, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Spirit and truth. True worship looks like spirit and truth worship. But I think for a lot of us as we read that, I know for me as I first read that I go, okay, that sounds good, but what does that really mean? What does spirit and truth worship really mean? What does spirit and truth worship really look like in my life? And and we're going to define it this way for us. True worship, spirit and truth worship is this. A heart continually being awakened by the spirit of God and a mind being transformed by the word of God. Spirit and truth worship is a heart being awakened by the spirit of God and a mind being transformed by by the word of God. You see, true worship that satisfies is about all of me continually transformed by God, continually surrendered to God. God is after my heart and my mind being transformed in him. And so let's start with the first part of this. God is after my heart. True spirit worship looks like a heart being awakened by the Spirit of God. So what this isn't is just lifelessly going through the motions of Christianity. 
What this isn't is just legalism where I do these things and then God will approve of me. Down with that and God says what I'm after is passionate, joy-filled, awake believers, awake followers of Jesus who say today is the day. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, so today we're filled with joy and we're awake to the Spirit of God following him wherever he calls. A heart being awakened by the Spirit of God. And I'll be honest, for me, this can be a struggle because I can just get lulled to sleep. This is my full-time job, right? And this can just become a textbook. This can just become something that I have to do. This can just become something that it's like, oh, I got to look in here to get my scripture to either preach or maybe read for, for a worship set. Or God's not after that. God wants a heart that's alive and continually made alive and awake by the Spirit of God. But not just our hearts, God wants our mind as well. The second thing we see, God is after a mind being transformed by the Word of God. Not just thoughtlessly buying the lies of the enemy, not thoughtlessly buying the lies of our culture, but being transformed by the power of this book. Opening this book and saying, God, I I really believe these are your words, and I believe they're living and they're active and they're sharp, so they're going to pierce my heart. But I want to get in this so that my mind can be transformed and we can begin to think more like God would have us think. And therefore, as we do that, we'll begin to live more like God has called us to live. God is after a heart awake to him and a mind being transformed by the word of God. And as we're living that kind of life, guess what? Our souls will be satisfied in the only one who can satisfy. God is calling us to fully and completely surrender to him this morning. But I think if we're honest, um, a lot of us in this room, really at our heart of hearts, might be thinking like, yeah, 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 I, I know that's true intellectually, but I'm maybe not experiencing that in my life. Maybe you're sitting here and you're going like, I have this sin struggle that I just can't let go of and, and it, I, I want to follow God. I want him to be all that I need, but I just, I, I, I want to follow God, but I still want to like hold on to this thing. I, I want to illustrate it for us this way this morning. Um, a lot of us say that we want to uh, love God. So I have... Lemonade here. Any lemonade fans? Yeah. Okay. We got some. This is actually very good lemonade. Um, stop by your local gas station and tell them DJ sent you and you'll get nothing. Um, so uh, you can, lemonade. This, this is my relationship with God. And what we often want to do is say, I love God. I love God. I want to be with him. We take a drink and it satisfies our souls. But at the same time, what we want to do is we have some other things in our life that we want to hold on to. We have some other things like, yeah, 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 God is good, but, but I have some other things. How many coffee fans in the room? Yes, yeah, we got some coffee fans. How many of you feel like you can't function without coffee in your life? That could be number four idol. We didn't get to that one, but coffee. We love coffee. And it's good. But what we often do in life is this. 
We say, I, I, love, I love God. But I really, really want to be comfortable in life. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not really going to do what God says. I love God. I, I want to spend time with him, his word. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to be with the Lord. I turn on my computer at night and I can't stop looking at naked people. I love God. I, I, want, I want him. I hate them. This is nasty. <laughs> and maybe, maybe what some of you do is say, yeah, 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 God has 90% of me, but, but there's still just this little bit that I want to hold on to. I'm not going to, I drank that first service and it's gross. But you get the picture. God isn't after half of me. God's not after 80% of me. Not 90, not 95, not 99. He wants everything. He wants it all. And for those of you this morning who are going, I've tried the whole God thing. It doesn't satisfy. Give him everything. Let it go. And I promise you, your soul will be satisfied in the only one who can satisfy your thirsty soul. Give him everything. There's so many things that pull us away from God, but God this morning is calling us to himself, and he wants all of us. He wants all of us. And that's why we at Harvest are committed to two things as we gather each and every weekend as a church body. We believe, yeah, God, God wants all of us. But we also know that throughout the week there's so many things pulling at our attention, pulling at our affection, and they're, they're dragging us away from the Lord. And so every week as we gather, we're committed to two things in our worship gathering. And number one is this, worship at Harvest better be vertical. And here's what we mean by that. So you think about horizontal. You think about um, the things that we see in this life, the things that can so easily pull us away from God. But as we gather each and every week on Sunday morning, the goal is to get our eyes off of the horizontal and we're, we're beginning to go vertical and remember who God is and remember that he's great and remember that he's awesome and remember he's gracious and remember he's better than those things. He's better than the hatred I hold on to. He's better than the bitterness I hold on to. He's better than the failed relationships. He's better than the comfort and the safety. He is better. But we don't remember that if we don't fix our eyes vertically on Jesus and worship him for who he is and for what he's done. And so each and every week as we gather, the goal is at some point in the service, our eyes are off of the horizontal and they're just vertically on the Lord going, God, you're worthy. And we're laying down those idols and we're coming running back into his open arms, worshiping him for who he is. And what he's done. And the second thing is this. Worship at Harvest is vertical. Worship at Harvest is about participating, not spectating. Worship at Harvest. We say participate, don't spectate. Because what my soul needs, what your soul needs as we gather, 
isn't just lifelessly going through the motions. Isn't just sitting back in my chair and kind of watching what's going on. What we need and how our souls will be satisfied in the Lord is when all of us together are leaning in and we're pursuing the Lord, we're worshiping the Lord, we're singing to Him, we're serving Him. All of us arms linked participating. This is like an all swim, okay? Everyone's in. All of us together after the glory of God. All of us together helping each other get our eyes off of the things of this world. Because golly, it's hard to follow Jesus, isn't it? We need a time each and every week where we can gather and participate together in the worship of the one who is worthy. And in the worship of the only one who will satisfy. And I want to encourage us with this. You as a church, from where we were two and a half years ago to today, have grown in tremendous ways as participators in worship. Honestly, it's so encouraging for me to see us lean in during worship and, and, and really participate and sing, and, and I love how God has grown us in that. However, I still think we can give more. I still think God is calling us to more as we gather to get our minds, to get our hearts ready for worship. And then as we gather to sing with everything we have because God is worthy of it and he's the only one who will satisfy. And I've got to remind myself of that every single week. And so I'd encourage you as we gather together, participate. Don't just spectate. Don't just lean back and watch. This is all of us together after the glory of God. And we're going to have a chance to practice that um, this morning as we close and as we finish. Um, we're going to be able to take communion together and then just respond in worship. And so if you're serving communion or helping with that, you can go ahead and head to the back this morning and get prepared. Um, but I'm going to have the worship team come out and we're going to have a time here to do some business with the Lord. Um, there's not going to be any words on the screen. Uh, we're not going to sing yet. Um, but what we are going to do is just really do some business with God to say, God, what idols am I holding on to in my life? And they may not even in and of themselves be bad things. Maybe it's a family member that you're just elevating to a place above God. Maybe it's a son or daughter, um, a, a parent. Um, maybe it's a, a spouse. Um, maybe it's the pursuit of, of success, which is, in and of itself is not bad. But we're elevating whatever it is above God, and it's leaving our souls destroyed. Now is the time, as communion is passed, to do some business with the Lord and say, God, reveal those things to me. And then when he does, don't leave here this morning without laying them down and saying, okay, God, just help me grow in not pursuing those things and putting them above you, but help me grow in just a life of like a heart alive to you and a mind transformed by the word of God and a life fully surrendered. And maybe you're sitting here and, and just nothing's even coming to your mind. I'd encourage you in your Bibles to turn to Psalm 139. And use Psalm 139, 23 and 24 as a prayer. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Make that your prayer. Ask God to search out your heart. 
and reveal those things in you that maybe grieve the heart of God and then have the courage this morning to turn away from those and to turn back into your gracious Father's arms. And so I wanna pray for us. Um, As the communion comes by, uh, you'll see there's two cups. Make sure you take both of those. And for those of you who need a gluten-free option, you'll find that in the middle of those trays. But let me pray for us and then we'll go after it together in a time of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word and just the way it encourages us, it challenges us, and it cuts right to our heart. God, I pray that this morning there would be people all over this room who find the courage to lay down their idols, that today would be the day where we say enough is enough. Enough is enough. I'm laying those things down, and God, we can find our souls satisfied in you this morning. Would that happen for so many of us in this room? Search us and know us, God, and reveal to us the ways in which we're worshiping other things. We pray that you would do that work now. In the matchless name of Jesus, amen.